This is episode number 314, The Science of Rest and Changing How We Work, with Alex Sujung Kim Peng. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. We have this phenomenon where our minds do a really good job of working on problems even when our formal attention is somewhere else. So, you know, we all have that experience of trying to remember like the name of the actor who was in the movie and that other thing and it's on the tip of your tongue and you can't remember it. And then two minutes later, you're doing something else and all of a sudden it pops into your head. Right, it was, oh, that was Scarlett Johansson. That is our subconscious minds continuing to work on problems even when we are focused on other things. And that phenomenon is one that our minds are actually really good at. And if given the opportunity, sort of will default to trying to do. And one of the things that deliberate rest offers is space for our creative subconscious to continue working on problems, working on projects, even while we are doing other things. I'm so incredibly grateful to be here, and it's been a rough go the last couple of weeks. Right after Colorado, I got home and I was taking care of both the kids while Matt was driving back, and then he came down with COVID, and then Bradley got COVID, and then Brooke got COVID, and then I got COVID, and I'm still recovering from it. So it's been pretty rough on our family, and I'm just trying to think big picture, and I'm excited for things to go back to normal soon. Big shout out and thank you to those of you who are supporting my work on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show and your donations on PayPal. I have a great team who helps make sure that this podcast sounds good and that's Roma and to make sure that it gets uploaded on time and the show notes are spot on and that is Rebecca and your donations go towards helping pay their salaries. So thank you so much. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to hit that subscribe button or to leave us a review because that will help it find others. I'm really excited to get into today's episode and to introduce you to Alex Pang. He's an author and speaker and is the Global Programs and Research Manager for Four Day Week Global, a nonprofit focused on advancing the four day work week. You might be thinking, what? A four day work week? And we'll get into that in a minute. Alex speaks around the world about the four day work week and the future of work and talks about how deliberate rest makes creative careers more productive and sustainable. He's the author of four books, including Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. And that is the book that we are talking about today. And I personally really enjoyed it as it chronicles history. The book highlights some of the world's top producers, scientists, artists, and talks about how much they actually worked versus how much we think that they do work. And how much do we actually need to work? Our culture and certain careers glorify work over rest, and rest is where creativity happens. And creativity is a big theme that is interweaved in Alex's book. 
He received his BA and PhD in History of Science from the University of Pennsylvania. He also studied corporate planning at the Wharton School. He taught History of Science at Williams College, UC Berkeley, and UC Davis, and also worked for several years as the managing editor of Encyclopedia Britannica. He launched his company, Strategy and Rest, after working as a senior consultant at Institute for the Future and Strategic Business Insights in Silicon Valley. You're going to get a lot of key takeaways, but primarily you're going to hear about why we feel the urge to overwork and don't rest. And we talk about what is deliberate rest because not all rest is created equal. We talk about some of the neuroscience about rest, including talking about the default mode network. You're also going to hear about the power of naps, intellect, and athletics. Four ways to actually rest because a lot of us know that we should rest, but we don't actually know how. We also talked about creativity and why routine is important for that. And we wrapped it up with how many hours a week we actually should be working to produce the best results and to be our best self. And before we get started, speaking of best self, we wanted to talk about our partner, Athletic Greens. I don't know about you, but I don't like having a bunch of different pill bottles strewn about my house and having to remember all of these different supplements that you have to take. And that's why I started taking AG1, which is one scoop of a powder that has 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. AG1 has done third-party testing to make sure that you are getting the highest quality supplement out there. They're NSF certified, and they're also a climate-neutral certified company. So you're not only taking a high-quality supplement, but you're supporting a good company. Eating a good diet is really important, but I also like having nutritional insurance with the supplement. I encourage you to try it and see how it makes you feel. I really like adaptogens, and that is one of the main reasons that I switched over to Athletic Greens a long time ago. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Sonia. And again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Sonia to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And it also will go to support this podcast. If you're already trying AG1 or you're interested in trying it, I'd love to hear how it's going for you. So make sure you send me a message on Instagram so that I can hear about it. And I'm at at Sonia Looney. Okay, so let's get into today's podcast and talk all about deliberate rest. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much for having me. Uh, for the listener who's not familiar with you and your work, can you give us a brief overview? Sure. So my name is Alex Pong, and I work for sort of nonprofit called Four Day Week Global, which is evangelizing the four day week. And I'm also a writer. And my most recent couple books are about first off the four day week, and then before then about the hidden role of rest in the lives of really creative and prolific people. So that's who I am. And how did you come across that idea or where did it come from for you to write about that? Because it's, it's kind of not what a lot of people think about. No, it's not. I had the idea. It, it actually came from what a personal experience. I have lived in Silicon Valley for the last 20 or so years. I was uh, and have worked in think tanks and as a sort of technology forecaster and futurist. So a lot of project work, a lot of, you know, stuff in uh, sort of with clients with high expectations and being in Silicon Valley, right? Sort of overwork becomes sort of the, you know, just the way that the way that you work. 
And a while ago, I had reached, as many do, kind of reached a point where I realized this wasn't working for me any longer and had the opportunity, fortunately, to sort of take a break and go to Microsoft Research and sort of join their, one of their research teams in Cambridge, England. And while I was over there, about halfway through my visit, I realized you know, I had this kind of epiphany where I realized I was getting huge amounts of stuff done. I was having all these cool ideas. I was talking to really interesting people, but I didn't feel the kind of time pressure and the sort of sense of being constantly overworked and sort of half a step behind that is just part of normal life in Silicon Valley. You know, and at the same time, I had all kinds of time for you know, sort of going out sort of with my wife. We would go on you know, weekends to London or up to Edinburgh or other places. And it made me think, you know, maybe our assumptions that are in order to do really good work, we have to be constantly on, we have to be sort of always available. We have to be working, you know, sort of. The, the ideal would be to work 16-hour days. Maybe all of that is actually backwards, that in order to do the work that we really care about, that sort of moves the needle in the world, that it's necessary to rethink the relationship between work and time and to sort of, in a sense, work less so that we have more opportunity to think about what we're working on, sort of to think deeply and to sort of have the energy necessary to work at, at a high level. So this kind of stuck around in my mind for a while. I wrote a different book in the or of, uh, interim, but it was one of those ideas that you know, kind of latches onto you. And eventually I started looking into sort of research in neuroscience and psychology and found actually a whole bunch of work that explained why it was that periods of leisure or apparently unproductive times are actually super important for creative work and for and indeed for all kinds of activity. And between that and sort of stories that I had accumulated from Nobel Prize winners and deeply creative people whose lives are really well documented and whose daily schedules are really well understood. I realized there's actually an interesting story here to be told about the role that rest turns out to play in helping people do their best work. And so that's the origin story for the this whole project. Do you think that in order for people to want to consider this idea that they have to have touched that fire and had burnout or had, you know, overworking problems? I would like to say no. The empirical evidence suggests yes, you know, that virtually everybody I write about in the book discovers the importance of, uh, of, of rest in their creative lives after having a health crisis or burnout or something that forces them to, or, uh, to, uh, to a reappraisal. And I think that the, you know, the bad news is now, we all seem to have to learn the hard way, I think partly because many of us have very good coping skills. We have sort of, we are able to kind of adapt poor habits or adapt to them well enough so that we're able to sort of perform reasonably well while not getting enough sleep or doing other things that really in the long run aren't good for us. And 
Consequently, it really requires some kind of crisis to make us reevaluate. The good news, though, is that even the smartest people have to come at this the hard way. And it is never too late for any of us to discover the value of sort of rest in our lives. So that's the upside of sort of the fact that we all seem to have to sort of come at this sort of come at this through the hard route. Yeah, and it seems like culturally, you know, in North America, especially, as you mentioned, it is we were looked at as, oh, that person's very competent or that person is very accomplished because they're working so hard. They're so busy. They have all these projects on the go. Therefore, they must be productive. Therefore, they must be successful. And in a lot of the work that you do with four day work week, it's sort of bumping up against that that cultural norm and saying, hey, wait a second, like this maybe isn't the way that we should be or this isn't the way that we should be doing this. So culturally, that's that's a big, hard shift that needs to be made. How are you and your organization addressing that? So you're absolutely right that there are all kinds of sort of cultural pressures that are layered on top of economic and structural and other things that sort of encourage us to kind of default to overwork. But I think that you know one of the things that the companies that have moved to four-day weeks have taught me is that you don't have to change the culture first and then change the way that people work. Instead, it actually kind of proceeds in reverse. That culture follows practice, it doesn't precede it. So what I mean by that is that you know companies that move to four-day weeks usually do, have historically done so because the founders themselves have had some kind of you know the, some kind of crisis or you know they lose. Know, half of or of half of their development team or a couple critical you know chefs in the sort of in the kitchen quit there's something that that makes the company realize they've got to make a big change but you know so they try a four day week as a way of solving a very very practical kind of sort of business problem and it's only after that change is in place that they start thinking differently about the relationship between, let's say, time and productivity and profitability. You know, I had a CEO who told me that, you know, before they moved to a four-day week, he very much hired for people who could you know, work long hours, sleep under their desks, who would, you know, who'd be very devoted to their jobs. And he real and he said, now, you know, I look back on that and I wonder what in the world was I was I thinking? Right, someone who needs twelve hours to do a job is not twice as good as someone who can do that job in six hours. They're half as good, and yet I was hiring for the half as good person. But you know, it's not that that CEO had that kind of mental shift first and then started hiring. It's that they made the change first. And so I think that the important thing here is that you know we often think of culture as this really kind of broad, diffuse thing that is difficult to change, that has so many different parts and is, you know, and is reinforced by so many different kinds of other forces, be they economic, social, what have you. But I think the good news is that you don't actually have to change the culture in order to do things like move to a four-day week. The culture change follows sort of follows those other changes and ultimately reinforces them, but it doesn't have to happen first. 
In your book, you had an amazing historical account of all of these different people who have made large impacts in society, who did things to rest, who worked less. And as we talked about earlier, maybe they learned the hard way that, that they had to do that in order to be their best. So if somebody listening to this says, okay, I'm interested. Why should I rest? What What is rest? So, and you talk about deliberate rest in your book. So can you define what that is? Sure. So, you know, we often think of rest as this completely passive thing, right? It's like sitting on the sofa with a bag of snacks in one hand and, you know, a sort of TV remote in the other. But, you know, one of the things that I learned in the course of researching this book was that the most restorative, most beneficial kinds of rest, the ones that help us best recharge the mental and physical batter energy that we kind of spend when we're working, are actually not completely passive but actually active. Sitting on the sofa, like, you know, binging a show has its place, but we get a bigger recharge out of active stuff, right? Whether that is going on walks, exercise, working out, sort of doing stuff in the world, or doing sort of mentally interesting and engaging things that are kind of different from our day jobs. But I think that what we, and what we see when we, in the lives of people who take that kind of rest seriously and make room for it is that it helps make people's lives more balanced and more sort of sustainable, but it also serves in the immediate run in providing a kind of space in which people are able to kind of continue thinking about hard problems, even while their conscious minds are somewhere else. We have this phenomena where our minds do a really good job of working on problems, even when our formal attention is somewhere else. So, you know, we all have that experience of trying to remember like the name of the actor who was in the movie and that other thing, and it's on the tip of your tongue and you can't remember it. And then two minutes later, you're doing something else and all of a sudden it pops into your head, right? It was, oh, that was Scarlett Johansson. That is our subconscious minds continuing to work on problems even when we are focused on other things. And that phenomenon is one that our minds are actually really good at. And if given the opportunity, sort of will default to default to trying to do. And one of the things that deliberate rest offers is space for our creative subconscious to continue working on problems, working on projects, even while we are doing other things. And for people who are doing deep creative work, this is really, really important because very often some critical piece of a puzzle or new insight or approach to a problem comes through that process. Right, not through not through banging your head on sort of the whiteboard for hours and hours, and so making time for that turns out to help you do better work, as you know, solve problems sort of faster and more deeply, even as it also makes it possible for you to have better lives and sort of longer, more sustainable careers. Yeah. So going and doing something else while you're working on a problem that's unrelated to the work that you were doing, your brain doesn't actually shut off. Your brain actually continues to work on the problem in your subconscious, even if you don't realize that it's happening. So while you might feel like you're doing nothing or you're not being productive at work, switching to a different mode, you are still being productive at work. It's just in a way that you're not aware of. 
That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, our minds do a really good job of continuing to work on problems, even in the absence of conscious effort. And this is something that you know, there can be a negative version of it, right? Sort of when you continue thinking about some issue at work, you know, or some conflict, and you have a hard time kind of sort of putting it down and getting out of your mind. But the positive version of it is, you know, comes in those periods where you're working on something that is complicated, it's challenging, maybe it's got a lot of different moving parts. And even while you are doing other sort of less complicated things, some of those ideas, those the, the unsolved problems are still turning over in the back of your mind. And so kind of giving your, yourself more time to let that sort of creative subconscious part operate to work through, you know, work through potential solutions turns out to be a really, really valuable way to make progress on problems and sort of ultimately to do better work than you would if you just continue trying to grind away at things. Yeah. In your book, you talk about how the brain is always active. And then you also talk about the default mode network and the power of mind wandering. So can you talk more about those? Sure. So the default mode network is something that neuroscientists started seeing about 30 years ago now when through um, fMRI machines, functional magnetic resonance. These are the big machines you put people in and you get these really pretty pictures of sort of the brain at work. One of the things that they saw was that when you put people in an fMRI machine and tell them to just relax and think about nothing at all, the brain doesn't actually like shut off. It sort of feels like it, but what's going on is that different parts of the brain start connecting together. Um, neuroscientists talk about sort of these, uh, these connectomes, these sort of networks of different brain regions that sort of self-assemble to deal with different kinds of problems. And what they realized was that when we unfocus our attention, our brains aren't going quiet. It's just different parts of our brains are activating. And they call this the default mode network. And the default mode network connects parts of the brain that are implicated in problem solving, in spatial or visual thinking. They're parts that we often draw upon when we're doing especially creative things. And the default mode is capable of switching on literally in the time it takes you to blink your eyes. So, you know, our brains are really, really good at switching over to the default mode. Now, a second group of scientists of uh, psychologists or creativity got interested around the same time in or of what happens in the what happens to us when we are mind wandering right when we are relaxing our attention and not consciously thinking about anything at all where do our minds go what do they think about and it turns out that for most of us number 1 a good part of our days is spent not focused on particular things, but actually kind of zoning out. Roughly half of our, half of our waking hours are spent mind-wandering. And the second thing is that they don't just kind of wander around at random. We, uh, or the wandering mind tends to or ruminate on the past, so you know, turning over past events in our lives, thinking about the future, or working on unsolved problems. And so put together, what this reveals is the degree to which 
our minds when left to their own devices are actually really good at returning to problems that we're working on and trying to solve and, and haven't yet been able to. And that if you want to do a better job of sort of solving difficult problems, um, one, it is actually really smart to give yourself, to give your mind more sort of more space for doing nothing, quote unquote, giving your mind time to wander so that it can wander over to unsolved problems or unresolved challenges and come up with solutions on your behalf. So that's the default mode network and the and mind wandering. Yeah. And you talk about the importance of going for walks and how a lot of these influential people have gone for walks and carried notebooks with them to come up with their best ideas. And is that because that allows for the, it creates this environment for mind wandering and without distraction of people talking to you or your phone dinging or all of those problems? That's a big part of it. There, I think getting out of your normal environment is, uh, or is one, one part of what explains sort of the, sort of the value, the kind of creative value of walks. There does seem to be something about walking itself that stimulates creativity. We don't exactly know what it is, but there was a lovely experiment that a couple of people at Stanford did where they were putting one group of people on treadmills, just like facing a concrete wall, and had another group of people out walking around on the Stanford campus, which is quite lovely, and then another group being pushed around campus in wheelchairs. And it turned out, I mean, if you assume that getting out you know, sort of seeing the trees, getting the fresh air was the main thing that would sort of stimulate your creativity. You might imagine that the people in the wheelchairs and the people walking sort of out in nature would score about as well on creativity tests. Well, it turns out that the people in the wheelchairs scored lowest and that it was actually the people on the treadmills scored below people who were just walking outside, but they did better than the people who were more passively exposed to or to or to the outdoors. So that tell and we don't really quite know what is going on. Clearly it's got something to do with the physical stimulation of walking. It's also got something to do with a certain comfort level that comes in walking at your own pace because if you walk really slowly or if you have to keep up with someone then you have you actually have a harder time or of uh, thinking well than if you're walking at your own natural pace. But however, the bottom line is that there's really amazing value in sort of taking walks as a means of solving problems and obviously getting some air and some exercise. Yeah, that study really stood out to me that someone could be in just like a blank room walking on a treadmill, and in. Green space is celebrated and has a lot of research around like reducing depression or, you know, enhancing self-actualization by being outside. But from a creativity standpoint, that's what you're, that's what you were talking about whenever you were talking about that study. So I just thought that that was really interesting. Yeah. No, I think that the, you know, the, and there is some evidence. There are other studies that have compared like creative problem solving after walking in parks versus walking in industrial parks. And you do definitely get a little boost from sort of, you know, being able to see the trees and the grass and so forth, you know, sort of the, the benefits of exposure to nature 
are, you know, sort of are multidimensional. But, you know, if you have to make a choice between sort of walking and not walking, definitely walk. I want to move on to naps. That's something that I personally struggle with and I try to lay down and I can't fall asleep. And I thought it was great in your book, how you talked about sleep pressure and timing your nap. If you're trying to boost like physical recovery versus creativity and just the importance and power of naps. So can you talk about that? Sure. This derives from a researcher named Sarah Mednick, who was really the first person to seriously study napping. People have been studying sleep for decades, like, you know, putting people down in underground caverns and <laughs> measuring, you know, circadian pressure and all sorts of things. But people have been, but the interest always had been like sort of sleeping through the night as opposed to naps. And so sort of uh, Sarah Mednick was the first person really to seriously look at naps. And what she found was that, first of all, people who take naps are tend to be healthier sort of they score better on creativity tests than people who don't nap and also that you can tweak the timing of your rest a little bit if to get a little more of a creative boost versus a little more of like a physical recharge and the effects are not gigantic, right? You know, a nap earlier in the day won't turn you into Albert Einstein, whereas one later in the day will turn you into Simone Biles. However, you know, it's like another feather on the scales. I think also that, you know, one of the things that we have learned since then is that while being able to drop off, you know, and fall asleep completely is great, that even just lying down and being able to close your eyes for 20 minutes, that actually brings more benefit than you might think that sort of the, the opportunity to sort of rest your brain or sort of to give your body a break that is more restorative than you might initially credit. So even if you can't fall asleep, there's still benefit to sort of taking that kind of break. Yeah. Uh, since I read your book, that's been something I've been trying to implement and trying not to put pressure on myself to fall asleep or be frustrated that I wasted time because I laid down for 20 minutes. Um, yeah. I think knowing what qualifies as rest is, is challenging for a lot of people, especially people listening to this podcast, because personally I'm a professional athlete, but I also do a lot of like knowledge work. So exercise is something that is, you know, stress relief. And I, I do get my best creativity my, or my best creative ideas when I'm out training, but that's also not quote rest for me because it's part of my work. And then you come home and then you get back on your computer or you open up a book and then you're stimulating your brain. So finding ways to rest where I'm not necessarily stressing my body because I'm working on that, but where I'm also not stressing my brain because I'm working on that at home. And that's kind of the case for a lot of people that listen to this, this show in your book, you talked about four different ways to rest. So can you talk about what those are? And then people can try and slide those into their life in ways that make sense. Well, I think that the sort of first off that there are lots of people who are doing really serious intellectual stuff or, you know, deeply creative stuff who also have these second lives as serious athletes, right? I mean, we all, there, one of the things that I really regret is we have in America this perception that if you're athletic, then you know, sort of, you're not supposed to be intellectual, and vice versa. 
Well, it turns out that some of the smartest people, you know, are actually intensely athletic and that there is a body of research that explains that these two things actually go together. And one of the things that I was really struck when I was writing the book was, you know, the number of people who are like Nobel Prize winning physicists who are also incredibly good mountain climbers or are serious ultra marathoners or do other kinds of things that are really physically very strenuous. There's a phenomenal study that was done of scientists in Southern California over the course of about 40 years. And it was looking at trying to understand what it is that separates really, really great scientists from just decent ones. And turned out, you know, they gave them like Rorschach tests and other things couldn't find any significant differences. And there was like one group of people who, there were four Nobel laureates, people with named chairs, et cetera, and then another group who were far less distinguished. And it turned out that the first group, the really high-performing group, was a lot more athletic. There was one guy who was a really serious surfer, other people who were sort of serious runners, sailors, et cetera. And they found basically Sort of what seems to be the case is that, first of all, being in better physical shape means that you're able to better support brain activity, but also you're better at time management. You tend to waste less time. And there is something about doing physically challenging things that seems to stimulate creativity or seems to stimulate kind of intellectual risk-taking. We're still trying to figure that out, but there's some sort of connection there. Now, the other thing that we learn is that, you know, these really serious or of hobbies tend to have a couple qualities, right? One is that, you know, people who are, let's say, serious scientists and also mountain climbers talk about both in similar kinds of terms that sort of they, uh, these deep hobbies or deep play, as I call it in the book, you know, offer a lot of the same kinds of psychological rewards as sort of work when it goes well without the downsides. And so if you're a scientist and sort of, uh, and you're a climber, you talk about climbing being a lot like science, right? You've got this big task, you break it down to a bunch of little parts. There's a technical dimension to it. It requires a lot of stamina, concentration. So it's like science when it goes really well, except the outcomes are very, very clear and they happen very quickly either at the end of four hours, you've made it to the top or you haven't. And, you know, for people who work in really, really complicated areas where projects can last years and outcomes can be really uncertain, that is a very rewarding thing. And over and over again, I think we see people adopting these kinds of hobbies as both a way of better managing their time, of finding another outlet for or a creative or psychological expression um, as a way of, of, you know, of, of sort of blowing off steam um, that, uh, you know, that turn out to play a really important role in making their careers and their lives more balanced and also some, and providing a platform in which sort of new ideas can sort of percolate and emerge. Yeah. So t- getting out there and taking on a physical challenge 
helps your intellect. It helps you be more creative and it helps you in your job. So that's just yet another reason why people should exercise. And even if it's as simple as walking, going out for a walk, like that also will make a difference. So moving your body is a huge, huge role in this. Yes, absolutely. You know, Annie Murphy Paul has a book that came out last year about the extended mind where she talks, she brings this story more up to date. But, you know, we, we tend to think of mental activity as just something that happens between like our brains and our eyes and screens. And that's very incomplete. It turns out we think with our whole bodies and what that, and part of what that means is sort of the, uh, that the more attention we pay to sort of our physical condition and sort of our physical shape the better we are as thinkers and the better we are as, or of, you know, as, uh, as people able to act in the world. Yeah. And I also had asked about the four ways to rest because for me, a question that I had to tackle was, well, how am I supposed to rest? If I'm doing all these things all the time, like what's the best way to rest? And uh, mm-hmm. in your book, you had relaxation, controlled recovery, mastery experiences and detachment. Um, I wrote those down. I hope that's, those are correct. <laughs> No, they, yeah, that comes from sort of the work of a sort of a German psychologist named Sabina Sonnentag, who sort of was interested in understanding why it is that apparently, you know, strenuous things like you know surfing and mountain climbing, or intellectually challenging activities turn out to be really restorative. And it's not about the number of calories that you expend or don't expend. It's more about like the psychological benefits or the kind of cycle the, or the position that those activities occupy. And so for people who are, especially for people in professions or really cerebral fields that don't have a physically strenuous component to them, unless like, you know, standing for 10 hours a day is sort of, you know, sort of is, is strenuous, you know, there is there is a recovery dimension, you know, to doing things like, you know, potentially like lifting weights or going for a run that may not be present for like, if you're a shepherd or a construction worker. And so, you know, looking for thinking in terms of the kinds of recovery, the detachment, the opportunity to sort of exercise control in a hobby or a sport or such, these are all things that contribute to how much recovery you get from an activity. And I think we, you know, we tend not to think of these things in sort of strict, you know, and we tend not to think of hobbies in those ways. But I think if you reflect on the things that have, that you have enjoyed most, it's often the case that the sort of, that you find some combination of those present in whatever thing you've you have most and most consistently enjoyed. So what about the sitting on the couch with your chips and your, your TV? Like, is there a role that that also plays in rest and creativity? Yeah, I think there is a, there is a role that it plays in sort of rest and recovery. But I think the important thing is that it is not synonymous with rest right? That it turns out that, you know, the most, the most valuable kinds of rest are active rather than passive. That, you know, the, the, the kinds of things we've been talking about, whether it's you know, cognitively challenging things, whether it's physically challenging, those are going in both the immediate and the long run 
going to do us more good than stuff that is sort of that is purely passive. Creativity was like the thread underneath it all in in rest. It was about how rest helps you be more creative. And I thought it was interesting how you tackled the idea of, well, do I start working so that I can feel creative or do I wait to feel creative until I start working? And as a writer, this is something that I kind of wrestle with a little bit. So can you can you talk about that idea? Sure. You know, I mean, I, I wrestled with it myself, sort of, and I think sort of every person who's a writer or does anything creative often starts with the presumption that you've got to be inspired first, and then you go and the inspiration kind of provides the fuel that helps you work. And to put it simply, that's backwards, or rather that you'll get better results if you kind of flip the script. That or if, when you look at the working routines of creative people, one of the things that you find is that they're actually kind of boring. People tend to you know, be at their desks at the same time every day. They work for you know, X number of hours, usually far fewer hours than we expect, and then they're done. And part of what happens, part of the reason that that turns out to be useful is not just that there's plenty of knowledge work that once you've learned to do it is kind of like craft. It doesn't require super deep thinking necessarily, but it's also the case more often that inspiration follows work rather than sort of drives work. So Stephen King talks about this and, you know, talk about someone who's incredibly prolific, right? He compares of creativity to this like stubborn maintenance guy, you know, who possesses like the magic fairy dust that will help you have really good ideas. And they're willing somewhat reluctantly to share it, but only after you started working. I think Picasso has a line that inspiration exists, but it has to find you working first. And so, you know, the, I think the, the takeaway from this is that you are more likely to have good results if you design your days so that uh, or to set aside periods for, or of, you know, or of periods for or of deep focused work, periods for rest and recovery, for deliberate rest, and that by doing that, you're more likely to construct a daily rhythm that, you know, in which the muse actually shows up and in which you get inspired. Yeah, this also kind of reminds me in cognitive behavioral therapy, there's something that's called behavioral activation, which essentially says that instead of waiting for the emotion to strike to do the thing, you have to get started to get going. So basically hmm. your motivation will follow your action. So a lot of times people will say, and, and I mean, behavioral activation is used more for like the people with depression, but in for, for like, you know, the lay person, it's like, well, I don't feel like exercising. I'm going to wait until I feel motivated to exercise where a lot of times you just have to go for one minute or you just have to get started. And then you actually get motivated or like, I'm not going to eat health. Like, I don't want to eat healthy. I don't want to eat a salad. Well, just start eating the salad. And then you actually might realize, well, this is actually pretty good. And so that, that sounds like it's the same thing in terms of creativity. That's an excellent comparison. Yeah. And I think actually that there is, uh, there, there is a lot that we can apply in improving our creative lives sort of that we can learn from things like that or from, you know, I've, I've been, I've been struck at how 
the advice of sort of really far-sighted coaches and trainers turns out to apply well to sort of managing creative lives. You know, just about everybody recognizes the importance now of rest days and training and the idea that, you know, you don't build muscle while you're working out, you build muscle while you're sleeping. But of course, you know, you need to work out first. And I think that sort of creative development turns out to follow a similar kind of rhythm. There is a lot to be learned by adapting patterns and practices like that from, you know, our lives as athletes or our lives as people who are trying to improve other parts, you know, or to improve other things. And thinking and seeing how they can apply in our creative and professional lives as well. Yeah. Something that I have to remind myself all the time is the rest is part of the work. And that goes for creative work that goes for physical work, because without the rest, you can't have these for for physical work. Without rest, you don't allow yourself to have adaptations. And the same thing goes for what you're talking about here with this deliberate rest of in order to have quote, adaptations of the mind and of ideas, you need to have this deliberate rest away from that to make that happen as well. Exactly. So talking about work, you, you talk about for a four-day work week, like how many hours a day should we be working? And does that vary depending on what industry the individual is in or even what their goals are? You know, okay. So for, for work that requires any kind of judgment, creativity, empathy, et cetera, the ideal would be four or five hours uh, order per day. I think that the if you're thinking in terms of how much do people need to work in order to get the like the psychological benefits of work, right? The exposure to other people, the sense of meaning that comes from sort of doing good work. There's a sociologist at Cambridge who's been studying this and finds that after about eight or ten hours working per week. We max out on those benefits. So, you know, in an ideal world, we would be, and in the kinds of worlds that successful creative people are able to design for themselves when they have like the freedom, the money, those people tend to work like four or five really intensive hours per day. And then that's pretty much it. You know, I'm not talking about your ordinary garden variety, like person who thinks that they're creative. I'm talking about like, Ludwig von Beethoven or or Charles Darwin, you know, or of people whose accomplishments are absolutely undeniable, right? These aren't creative wannabes. And so, you know, the move to four-day weeks is, you know, one hopes ideally the first step towards a work week that maybe is even shorter. But importantly, right now, is one that recognizes the importance not just of trying to uh, trying to solve these kinds of problems or work more rest into our daily lives by ourselves, but demonstrates that this can be really, really powerful if we do it together, if we act collectively, and that there are benefits not just for individuals, but for organizations and for teams and for society as well. And so that's why I've been sort of focused on sort of four-day week stuff or of, and working on that for sort of the last couple of years, kind of building on the work of rest, but showing how it can apply at the organizational level and how sort of companies can harness it in order to be better places to work and to do better work. So at the organizational level, how many hours a day are these businesses mandating for a four-day work week? Like, Because I think a lot of these, a lot of people are overachievers or, or 
pushers and they're like, okay, I'm going to work four days. So I'm going to work four 12 hour days so that I can take Friday <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that the, um, and, uh, so companies, companies that are moving to four day weeks are actually reducing the number of hours that people are working. Um, and so it's not going to four 10 hour days, um, but rather four eight hour days, right? Genuine. So this is, this is genuine work time reduction. As for that question of, right, what do you do with people who are super dedicated, ambitious, they really like their work, shouldn't you just let them work 12-hour days, is a bit like asking, or Steve Kerr, you know, Steph Curry really loves to play, so shouldn't you let him play, you know, all four quarters of every single game? Well, the answer turns out to be no, because Kerr has to be strategic about sort of, you know, about when Curry and everybody else plays. And indeed that, you know, having your players out there, like eventually playing at 80% or versus being more strategic about how you deploy them, more strategic about their playing time and having them play at a really high level yields better results both for the team and sort of for sort of and for individuals. And I think that you know in far too many workplaces, the assumption has been that sort of a good manager is someone who is able to get everybody working at a hundred percent all the time, or at least puts everyone out on the field a hundred percent of the time. And I think one of the things you do when you move to a four-day week is you have to start thinking a little more strategically about when people work at their best, when teams work at their best, and start to kind of design your days a little more thoughtfully so that you know you don't have to put everybody out on the field for all four quarters. Yeah, like if you have less time to get a project done, you actually can become more efficient and I personally had this experience because, well, a lot of people had this experience with the pandemic in some ways. I I also think though, with the pandemic that people might've overworked, but if you have less time to get stuff done, like if you have kids around or, you know, more demands that you can't spend on the actual project work that you're doing, it turns out that at least for me personally, I was able to still do the same amount of work in less time because I just had less time to do it. So therefore I wasted less time. Yeah. You know, one of the things that people who study sort of distraction in the workplace have concluded is that the average knowledge worker loses two to three hours per day to overly long meetings, to distracting technologies, or to sort of interruptions that take a while to recover from. What that means is that, in a sense, the four-day week is already here. It's just buried underneath these bad practices. And so if you can just eliminate those, get a handle on that stuff, you go a long way to being able to do five days' worth of work in four days. I think the second important thing from your example is that there are plenty of people who had to figure this out. And within and in lots of the companies that move to four-day weeks, they do so when, you know, after they've had a few people who have moved to four days and realized that they're actually just as productive as they were when they were working five-day weeks. And almost always, these are working moms who have to be more ruthless about their time, you know, or they're better at setting boundaries, 
at focusing and getting stuff done and then moving, you know, and then moving on to the next thing because their time is, you know, their time is precious. And their example turns out to be uh, sort of uh, to offer a lot of lessons to all of us about how we can more thoughtfully design our time so that we can, uh, so that we can, we can get done in fewer hours the things we need to do, we can prioritize, we can you know, sort of choose the important tasks and, you know, and disregard the unimportant ones. So, you know, I think that there are, uh, that, you know, the four-day week sometimes at first blush looks like something that is either like this idealistic, you know, sort of the, the pipe dream or is impossible, right? How can I possibly get everything done in four days when I'm struggling to get it done in, you know, in six? But in reality, there are probably within your own organization, people who already are working in ways that show that it's possible and are doing things that are scalable throughout your teams, throughout your companies. Have you run into issues working with some organizations where they did switch to a four-day week and then it just wasn't really working for them? I think that there are challenges with companies that are doing where the work is highly cyclical or seasonal. So if you are in construction, for example, and you know 90% of your work happens in the spring and summer, then you don't necessarily have a lot of play in order of your schedules to adopt a four-day week. I think that there are you know, the few places that have tried four-day weeks and have moved away from them have done so mainly because of macroeconomic pressures. So there was one or stand-up paddleboard company, for example, that had moved actually to a five-hour day and had done very well until or if Amazon came along and started selling stand-up paddleboards. And you know, as you might expect, that had a big impact on their business. Or a startup gets a round of venture capital funding and the VCs say, we love what you're doing, but we need to see people sleeping under their desks. So, you know, we'll give you 20 million, but no more four-day week. There are not many places in which it actually doesn't work. I suspect there probably are more of them than I know about, but, you know, one of the things about companies is that they're a lot more willing to talk about their successes than their failures. So I don't have as many good stories of companies where it hasn't worked as sort of I have for companies where it has. So our knowledge of why they fail is not as robust as I would like. I worked for this company a long time ago. So my previous life, I had my master's degree in electrical engineering and I was working for this government laboratory and they proposed something that was called the 980. So you would take every other Friday off, but you would be working nine hours a day instead of eight hours a day. Yeah, I know there are a few government offices that do that. There's a, and I think that the the 980 or the nine day fortnight, it's sometimes called, is I think that there are people who really like it. I think the the, and it really comes down to number one: can you be reasonably productive during those nine hours? So you know, one of the things we see is that in a lot of work productivity really starts to drop off from about hour six or so. So, you know, hours eight and nine may not, you, you might not be able to get very much done depending on the work you're doing. And then whether you like, basically, do you like 
a three-day weekend more than you dislike nine-hour days. <laughs> and depending upon where you've, and you know, that's a very subjective thing. But I think it is something that, uh, it's another thing that we're seeing sort of more places experimenting with. And in some cases, it turns out to be the kind of gateway drug to a four-day week, right? Discovering that you can do this, that you can play around with your schedules becomes the first step towards actually you know, going from a Friday off every other week to a Friday off every week. Yeah, there's so much to talk about here. And it takes confidence to step off the treadmill and to give it a try to see how you perform or how your organization will perform if you're implementing these these structural changes. But yeah, I, I say for me personally, it has made a difference in my life. I'd say in the last five years to have the courage to say, I'm not going to work myself to death because that's my tendency and to be aware of that. And then to say, well, how is this impacting me? How is this impacting my, my ability to create things or to be productive? And how is it impacting my well-being? And I think the well-being conversation is something that is often not included when it comes to productivity or workplace practices. And if you have that stronger foundation of well-being, you can be more productive and creative in your work life. Yes. You know, and I think that sort of we have we have all recognized this as an ideal, but I think now more than ever, between sort of the experience that many of us have had during the pandemic, but sort of the examples of four day of companies moving to four-day weeks, it's clear that there are feasible alternatives to constant overwork, to sort of thinking of our careers as a kind of race against obsolescence and burnout. And we have lots of, lots of examples of people and organizations that sort of manage to construct schedules and routines and business models that are far more sustainable, that allow people to do what they love for a very long time rather than for short, intensive times, and that yield better work and better lives and you know, ultimately, I think, make us better, happier people. So, and you know, what more could we ask for? I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Where can people find your work? So on Twitter and just about everything else, I am askpang, A-S-K-P-A-N-G. And then I do some occasional writing on my website, which is strategy.rest. Rest, fortunately for me, is a top-level domain. <laughs> so you can find it there. And then the rest of my time is spent at 4 Day Week Global which is fourdayweek.com. So that's where I am. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time and for your expertise. And I'm really excited for people to maybe try out a four-day week. Oh yeah, me too. So thanks very much for having me on. I hope you enjoyed that episode and got a lot out of it. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button for future episodes and to leave us a review so that other people can find your review and it can inform their decisions on what podcasts to listen to as well. As always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. We'll see you right back here next week. 